In some churches, they stand when the Word of God is read. And this morning, I'd like us all to stand as I read our text, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Please be seated. Let me begin in prayer. Father, we pray now that you'll be present with us through the power of your spirit to help us worship you in the understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, Bring to us enlightenment and truth. Um, Bring to us that which is meaningful and pertinent to our lives. I pray that I would speak through the power of your spirit today. And I ask, Lord, that you will be glorified. Praying this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We are almost through our series on the marks of a disciple. Those characteristics that can be identified in a disciple of Jesus. Today is the 10th of 11 marks that we've identified in our church. There could have been others. Other churches may address more or less. But we believe that there are 11 important characteristics to every disciple. And today's will focus on being accountable, being Accountable. The big idea is this, that a disciple of Jesus is accountable to others within the church for the life that he or she lives for God. I'll repeat that. A disciple of Jesus is accountable to others within the church for the life that he or she lives for to God. Discipleship is never done alone. There are no lone rangers for Jesus. It is not an individual sport, but rather a team sport. Relationships are important for those who are disciples of Jesus. And in our text today, The church is identified as a culture of accountability, where the relationships between disciples matter, where there is accountability. Now, cultures of accountability exhibit several things. And if you go on the internet and you look up culture of accountability, you'll see it within the context of businesses, 
for the most part. But as a coach, former coach, I could tell you that teams have cultures of accountability. In fact, the best teams have cultures of accountability, where people take high levels of personal ownership. In other words, people understand that they are committed to what they are about. And within the church, we take high levels of personal ownership for our behaviors, our decisions, our actions. But there are also high levels of accountability to one another. That accountability might include my holding myself accountable in talking to you. I might say, brother, I need to talk to you. Would you give me some advice? Or, brother, I need to make a confession to you. Or, sister, I need to ask you to forgive me. Right? For my judging you unfairly. But there are also levels of accountability where I might go to someone and say, can we talk? I have to tell you, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with the kind of language you use. I don't understand how a follower of Jesus can use that talk when Scripture says we're not supposed to use unwholesome talk, where we're supposed to say things that are uplifting, not tearing people down. And it might also include someone coming to you and saying that very thing. These levels of accountability also, of course, go to the levels of leadership, where we're accountable to our ministry leaders and to the elders and to this congregational body. But the best organizations and the best churches and the best teams are when people actually, for lack of a better word, police each other. Not because we're trying to point out what's wrong, but because we're trying to help one another to strive to be the very best that we can be. There is one other thing that is important about churches. And this is different than every other organization, business, or team. And it is this. That within the church, we function within the context of God's love and purposes. So that this personal ownership and high level of accountability is taking place within the context of love for one another. Within the context of what God purposes for us as a church body. We live in a culture where we're fairly isolated from one another. And we live in a country where we're able to live apart from each other. But if you go to many other places in the world, community is everything. Community is survival. 
It is for us as well. We just live in the illusion of somehow we can do this on our own because we have the affluence to do it on our own or because others are doing it on our own when in fact most of us aren't really doing it on our own. We're just looking like we are. Unless we're in community with others who are helping us to be accountable, holding us accountable, and allowing us to hold them accountable as well. Let me give you a little background on the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a happening place. I mean, there were lots of new Gentile believers, and the Holy Spirit was just pouring himself out in power at this church. And the purpose of Paul's letter to them was to instruct them, to correct them, and make sure that they had the correct theology and that they understood the right practical applications of it. Now, beginning in verse 9, and I want you to understand those first eight verses are the context for 9 through 13, Paul refers to the call to holy living. There's a call to holy living. And Paul presents that call to them in a previous letter. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now we don't have that letter, or this would be 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians would be 3 Corinthians. But we do know some things about this letter by what Paul is saying here. And what we can surmise is that Paul has given them some directions in holy living. He has given them the instruction not to associate with sinners. This is what it says. I wrote you my letter, not to associate with. That word means not to mix with or be mixed with. And then he, dis- he says later in the uh, other verses, the sec- well, he, d- he talks about sexually immoral people. And the word there is pornos, from which we get pornography. And it means those uh, who are engaged in sexual immoral behaviors. That is, they are acting in a sexually impure manner outside of the boundaries God has established for sex that is to take place within the context of marriage. Misuse of sex is a serious matter. But I'm not going to talk about that this morning. That's because... There is an underlying principle that Paul has provided us in his directions to this church that relate to a culture of accountability. But we're going to have to deal with that misconduct because it helps us to understand this underlying principle of accountability. In the previous letter, the Corinthians did not fully understand Paul's call to living for them that they were not to associate or mix with sinners. Paul is clarifying this in the entire chapter. He cites an example of a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. And the man is clearly unrepentant. 
In verse 2, Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Mixing with this man is not good. He says, remove him. Put him out. Why put him out? Well, Paul provides three reasons for this. First, Paul says it is for the man's salvation. He may well think that because he professes faith in Jesus, he is saved. He is saved from judgment of God. He is saved from the judgment of hell. And when he thinks about it, the church accepts him. So maybe it's true. He is saved, even though that's not how we are to act. Paul says, remove any doubt. Do not be complicit. In this, do not enable this man's sin. Remove him from it. In the vernacular of today, scare the man straight. Turn him over to Satan. Hopefully, hopefully, it will cause him to repent and be reconciled to God so that he will not lose the salvation of his soul. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the hope is that this man will repent. He will be reconciled to God. He will be scared straight. The second reason that Paul says to remove this man from among them is for the church's witness. Paul writes in the very first verse, that even the sinful world views this man's behavior as repugnant. It is actually reported, he says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Paul adds later, your boasting is not good. Now why does he say that? I wonder. I suspect he says it because the church is somehow rationalizing this man's presence among them. They are likely, as many churches do today, extending grace beyond grace, beyond grace, beyond grace. And they're doing everything they can to try to show this man God's love for for him and his acceptance of him. And they're holding back God's judgment. But that church is not showing this man grace. They are enabling this man's sin. Grace is God's response when we are responsible for ourselves 
and admit our sins. But God does not merely just cover us and we can do whatever. Because Jesus died for sin, we don't get to just be lawless people. Paul deals with this in his letter to the Romans. We're called to live responsible lives in Romans. And he's very clear. If you allow sin to be your master in lawlessness, then it will own you. And you have nothing to do with Jesus. So Paul says, your boasting is not good. Put this man out. And the third reason, he says, is it is for the church's well-being that you do this. This man may serve as a very negative, leavening agent. This is what he says after your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, for those of you who are bakers, you understand this illustration. And I have had the thrill of... Baking myself and watching when you use a little yeast, which is a leavening agent, in the dough, it leavens the entire dough. So that the bread, instead of being dense and heavy and chewy and hard, becomes fluffy and light. And its taste is delicious. But you can't leaven part of a loaf and not the rest of the loaf. The leaven affects all of the dough. Paul says, remove this man from among you. For his sins may well give rise to greater sins among you. An acceptance of sin among you. Then Paul clarifies. What did he mean when he said, do not associate with, don't mix with sinners? And he says this, that they are not to mix, rather, they are not to judge outsiders or shun outsiders. This is not to be applied to those who are outside of the body of the church. Paul wasn't talking about that. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. We are called to be the Lord's ambassadors. We are called to share the good news about Jesus who has died for the forgiveness of sins and is is eager to forgive us if we will Receive it from Him and believe in Him that He is Lord. That His death has covered our sins and that He did rise from the grave. If we separate ourselves from people, how will they hear the Gospel? It's true that God can reach anybody He wishes, but God has chosen to include us in this Redemption process for all humanity and all the world. So we are not to separate ourselves from those in the world. 
Rather, we are not to mix with sinners within the church. That is, insiders. And by sinners, he is talking about those who are unrepentant. For sure, all of us sin. It's our flesh nature. We do a better job and not such a good job at times, right? But Jesus has died for our sins. And when we trip over our anger, when we forget to be loving when God calls us to love, when we fail to show compassion or fail to stand up for justice or fail to do what's right, God can forgive us. We need only repent of it. Paul is not talking about that. Paul is talking about an unrepentant sinner. He is talking about a brother or sister who bears the name of Christ, calls himself Christian, and goes on living any way he or she pleases. He is saying we are to stop associating with them. This is tough stuff. This is not live and let live. This is hold one another accountable. But remember, we're to do it in a culture of love. And Paul gives lots of, of, of directions about it that we are to do it gently with each other. This culture of accountability that we have at the church means that we are accountable first and foremost to God. But we are also deeply accountable to each other. And that is part of our accountability to God. So we are not to mix with unrepentant sinners within the church. Now let me talk about this process. The process as I see it as a pastor of almost 40 years generally begins by confronting a person. It starts on a personal level. It may follow the format of Matthew 18, right? Where if somebody harms us, we're told to go to them and then we're told to expand the circle and bring a friend and then we're told to take it to the church. Well, in this accountability, we may not be harmed, but we still follow this pattern. First, one-on-one. We speak directly to the person. We tell them we're having a problem with this. And we try to come to a meeting of the minds. Perhaps we're seeing it wrong. Perhaps we're seeing it right. As a believer, I can tell you I've never been accused of anything that I didn't take seriously. And sometimes I thought some of the accusations were completely out of, out of left field and wrong. But I always felt that there was something I could learn, even from that. I had a guy stand up in a congregational meeting when the elders let go of a youth pastor, say to me, well, you know, over the 27 years you've been here, 
have been a number of people let go. And you're the one constant in the process. 27 years? Are you kidding me? But I thought about it. And I thought, you know, I don't think that applies. But I'll ask the question of the elders. I'll ask the question of a few others. And I will hold this man still in high regard because he is my brother in Christ. And I get to practice love with him. Well, that's where it starts. And then it should move on to a ministry leader or a pastor in which this confrontation then about this unrepentant sin moves along. Hopefully, that leader or that counselor or that pastor can make more sense out of it for the person and the person can come to repentance. But sometimes that doesn't work. And then it needs to come to the entire elders. And the elders will sit down and review this process. And in fact, in almost every church, we not only have the Word of God to define what that process looks like, but you also have a constitution which tells you what that process looks like, which usually in our church does include a formal hearing. Not necessarily done in public, but in private. And that hearing can lead to dismissal from the church. If necessary, it can be confronted in front of the entire congregation. And we did experience that just a couple years ago. Three times in my pastorate, as a pastor, I have been engaged in the serious nature of that process. Only once did one of those people repent? It is a serious process. It often goes slow because what's at stake is someone's salvation and you don't want to make a mistake. And I could tell you that elders take it very seriously. Paul then, after he clarifies, goes on to talk about holiness that comes through accountability. And that's in verses 12 and 13. And he defines the church as a culture of accountability. This is the underlying principle for all the action that he is directing them to in chapter 5. He is calling them to be accountable to one another. What does this mean? Well, it means first that every member takes personal ownership for his or her actions. And part of that ownership means that you are accountable to the larger body of the church. I heard somebody once put it this way. I don't get to say to you, if my sin brings dishonor to the Lord or the church, well, that's my business. That's none of your business. That's not what it means to be part of the church. 
Your business is my business. My business is your business because it's all about the business of Christ. Ultimately, about the witness to Christ and the work of Christ. Your life reflects upon those you call brothers and sisters here. This is why Paul will say to them, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now here's the thing that we can be assured of. No one escapes judgment. This is consistent throughout scriptures. No one escapes judgment. But God doesn't ask us to go about judging people outside of the community of faith. He does ask us to enter into judgment about those within the community of faith. We are to judge ourselves. Say, well, that that sounds awfully unfair. You can give yourselves a pass. You can cheat on the judgment. Not true. Not true. As disciples, we've received the forgiveness of God for all our sins. Past, present, and future. We have a responsibility to repent of those sins and come to God. We may have to suffer consequences of those sins. And most often do. But we are not condemned by them for eternity. This, of course, does not include those who are unrepentant and and consciously giving themselves over to sin. As disciples, we have the Holy Spirit, the power of God who enables us to live holy lives. As disciples, we have the Word of God to instruct and guide in holy living. As disciples, we have one another for support and ongoing feedback so that we are able to live holy lives. As disciples, we are more than capable of judging and holding one another accountable. So the text says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the Corinthians are commanded to remove this unrepentant man from the fellowship. Purge the evil person from among you. Our culture of accountability not only sustains us in living holy lives, but also helps us to mature spiritually. Disciples of Jesus are accountable. We are actively engaged in accountability. And we do not shirk from that accountability, but we embrace it. This is true of every great organization, every great family, but most of all, the church. And this culture 
within any of those bodies has its formal ways of engaging in this culture of accountability, and it has informal ways. And let me see if I can explain. This year will be 50 years since the team I played on in high school my senior year went undefeated in football. We played on three championship teams together. I know people don't like illustrations on sports, but ladies and gentlemen, bear with me. We developed a very close relationship through those four years of high school. We were holding each other accountable in every way imaginable. And the thing that was amazing to me is how much we loved each other. And over the years, when I've talked to the coaches, because we get together over the years, there's just a few coaches left, but they come whenever we get together. And they have said to me, we knew you guys were special. There was something that you guys had that we didn't see in others. You guys loved each other. And you guys held each other accountable. We didn't have to push you. You pushed each other. We didn't have to make you work harder. You made each other do it. You embraced it and you loved it. And one of the things that I learned from that experience was as a player and then as a coach and as a man of God trying to understand what was the power and all of that, it was love. Love. It wasn't trying to defeat the other team. It was not letting each other down because we loved each other that much. That's the church. That's an illustration of the church. Pastors don't have to get out with bullwhips and tell you, come on, live life right, will you? We don't have to threaten. We don't have to be negative. In love, we tell each other the truth. We encourage each other. We admonish one another. We love each other. We speak the truth so that we get down to the core of it and we can overcome together. That's this culture of accountability. I want to just take just a few more minutes to apply it now. To look at how we fail at it and to look at how we succeed at it. How do we fail at it? Well, there are those people who like to say, I believe in Jesus, but I reject the church. I have an aversion to religion, but not to Jesus. It's a good argument. It doesn't hold water, but it shuts a lot of people up. The truth is, Jesus never gave us that option. Jesus called his disciples in the community with each other. And he lived out of the community of his day. 
He didn't reject it. He fulfilled it. I've heard people say, well, the church is controlling. And no one could tell me what is right and what is wrong and what to do. I suppose that's one of the ways we can look at it. The church is controlling. But I don't think the church is necessarily. Not if it's teaching the Word of God. It doesn't have to control. The Word of God should guide us. It doesn't have to produce guilt. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit will convict. I think sometimes people just don't want to be in that setting. They're afraid. So they act like spiritual lone rangers. But there are no lone rangers among the disciples of Jesus. Yes, it's true, there are plenty of TV preachers, preaching going on on the internet and teaching, the radio, people have books, and there are plenty of Bibles available. But without accountable relationships with other disciples, it is most likely that we will never fully understand nor be able to live out the application of that understanding of what it means to live holy lives. Instead, we will pretend, justify, rationalize, and excuse away our sinful behaviors because by nature we are all sinners. And we will gravitate to that, left up to our own devices. But the Holy Spirit always leads us into community with other believers so that they can help hold us accountable for acting in a manner that is consistent with living as a disciple of Jesus. So that they can encourage us in this life and we can encourage them. Now it's true that most of those people aren't in this church today. They're not going to sit in a church and listen to a service or a preacher teach. There are, however, others who hang out at the church but don't necessarily join it. Sometimes they have some really good reasons for that. Some of those reasons may include having been hurt by people who are close to them. So closeness and intimacy is, is very frightening. And sometimes people have been hurt by the church. My grandfather was hurt by the church. My mom told me that they stopped going to church. Something happened when he was an altar boy. What I do know is I grew up in a home where we went to church every week. My dad was adamant about that. And he said to me, having fought in World War II, Son, there are no atheists in foxholes. I think maybe that's where his faith got pretty important to him. And he wanted us to live that out. I am grateful for that. There may be other reasons why people just kind of hang out and don't join the church. I can understand that. Some of those, like I said, may be very good. But without commitment, something is missing. The sanctifying effect and blessing of love will never fully be realized, just as a couple that lives together will never fully realize the blessing of committed love to each other 
when they are married to one another. Failure also comes to the church in terms of accountability within the body when members fail to hold each other accountable. And the Bible, as I said, gives us direction in this, being gentle. But let me say a couple of things. First off, there are those people who will not hold themselves accountable or allow themselves to be held accountable. The nature of our relationship with Christ begins in submission to Him. And then it extends to His body, the church. And while we may be afraid of authority, nevertheless, we submit to it, trusting that God is over it. And He can be trusted. Here's the second problem. We don't always know how to hold each other accountable. Some people shirk from it. They just go, well, who am I to judge? It's just too uncomfortable. And others rush to pointing their fingers and speaking out in anger, acting like a prophet in righteous judgment. And I just want to say to you, I know none of you have any credentials from the prophet school. You do not have your master's degrees in prophecy. That's not to say that God won't use you to speak prophetically to us. But we need to be doing this in a loving way with each other. Honest, but loving. I would say to you that whether it's shirking from it or rushing into it, the solution is other disciples. See if they see things the same way you do. Talk to your pastor. See if they see things the way you do. Or your elders. That will help you in knowing how to proceed with that. Disciples need each other. That's just the way it is. How do we succeed in it? Well, first we succeed in it by participating within the membership of the body. That is, we are making a commitment to be in relationship to each other. To hold ourselves accountable and to hold others accountable and to be held accountable by others. This is an important step in the development of disciples because it ensures our ongoing growth in Christ and in holy living. As I said earlier, we will never know the full blessing of committed love unless we are committed. There are other steps in this regard. There is mentoring that happens within the body where two people agree to come together, one being a mentor of the other and provide leadership and direction. There are life groups in which we exist in small groups and we live out this this life together with one another. And there are the informal kinds of things we do where we give each other feedback on what's going on. Hey, Chris, i got to talk to you about my, my daughter. You have daughters. Can we talk about this? Because I'm really losing my temper. How do I handle this right? 
This is what it means for us to be accountable. The church embodies an ethos that is characterized by high levels of personal ownership through accountability. So that people are not so much governed by rules as by their commitment to love God and to love one another as they carry out the mission, purposes, and goals of the church. We are the body of Christ in this geographic area. And our responsibility is to witness to God's love here. Beyond for sure, but here as well. I could give you example after example after example of the church and its profound, profound effect upon us in terms of this culture of accountability. I'll just summarize it by saying that we're accountable to one another. That means that we hold ourselves accountable that means that we hold others accountable. And it means that others hold us accountable. And what makes this work is that at the heart of this accountability is God's love. God's love for us, our love for God, and God's love that we share for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us life and providing us, Lord, with forgiveness through Jesus and gifting us with the Holy Spirit and providing us with your word that guides and instructs. We thank you, Lord, for giving us fellowship with one another and for calling us to hold each other accountable in love. And we pray that we as a church would grow in this and we pray that we would develop deep bonds with each other that might bring great glory to you. We ask that you make us faithful followers, Jesus, and pray this in your precious name. And everyone agreed and said?